Welcome. You're listening to Blood Advances Talks. Blood Advances Talks are scholarly review articles that are presented in an audio format and published in the American Society of Hematology's open access journal, Blood Advances. Transcripts for Blood Advances Talks undergo the same rigorous peer review process as all articles published in Blood Advances and can be downloaded by visiting bloodadvances.org. We thank you for listening. Hello, my name is Glenn Pierce. I'm the Vice President for Medical for the World Federation of Hemophilia, a nonprofit global healthcare organization. The title of my talk is Gene Therapy for Hemophilia, Anticipating the Unexpected. In the gene therapy therapeutic area, I'm a consultant to Biomarin, Takeda, Pfizer, Third Rock Ventures, Decibel, Ambus Medicines, and Goldfinch. I chair the World Federation of Hemophilia Medical Advisory Board, am a member of the WFH Board of Directors, and am a member of the U.S. National Hemophilia Foundation Medical and Scientific Advisory Council. The treatment of hemophilia, which has undergone many transformative changes over the past 60 years, is poised for yet another disruptive change, the use of gene therapy to produce functional cures in some persons with hemophilia A or B. The path toward achieving subnormal to normal levels of factor VIII and factor IX activity has not been straightforward and is littered with failures over these past 25 years. Through setbacks and iteration, adeno-associated virus, AAV, proved to be a useful vector to carry the factor VIII and factor IX transgenes. And once cassettes were optimized and dose escalation proceeded, therapeutic levels of clotting factors were achieved by several groups. Since these transgenes produce fully active proteins, breakthrough bleeding and the use of exogenous clotting factors has been nearly eliminated for most clinical trial participants when they express a sufficient amount of protein. These first-generation gene therapies, which have initiated regulatory review, will decrease or eliminate the burden of hemophilia for many of those who are eligible to receive the therapies. However, many are ineligible, including those who are seropositive or cross-reactive to multiple AAV serotypes, children, those with comorbid conditions, and those who live in countries where even the most basic plasma-derived clotting factors are not reliably available. Thus, although the first-generation gene therapies will have an important impact on the burden of hemophilia, many questions remain to be answered regarding safety, durability, and reliability as this technology advance progresses toward individuals worldwide with hemophilia. Gene therapy for hemophilia A and B is close to becoming an integral contributor to the treatment armamentarium, with the first regulatory reviews underway and several others likely to follow over the next few years. In a community that has seen enormous changes since the mainstay of treatment, fresh frozen plasma, in the early 1960s, how will gene therapy differ from other recently approved state-of-the-art therapies? These include extended half-life factor VIII and factor IX clotting factors, which are biobetters compared to the conventional clotting factors, and a bispecific antibody, which can replace some of the functions of factor VIII to provide a thrombin burst sufficient to prevent most spontaneous and traumatic bleeding. Despite these remarkable technical advances, thanks to the power of molecular biology, high throughput screening, and protein engineering, 
gene therapy promises subnormal to normal factor eight, factor nine levels that for all intents and purposes would be considered curative. Will this promise of a cure survive the reality of commercialized gene therapy? For some, yes, and for others, no. Despite 30 years of false starts, false promises, dead ends, frustrations, and bankruptcies, the simple act of placing a replacement transgene in a virus shell, delivering it, and seeing a sufficient amount of clotting factor made and secreted has been achieved. Nathwani, Tuddenham, and Davidoff were the first to achieve long-term circulating levels of factor IX in individuals with hemophilia B using intravenously delivered adeno-associated virus that home to the liver. While levels in the high-dose group were on average only about 5% of normal, they were sufficient to greatly decrease bleeding episodes and clotting factor usage in most individuals. Participants with severe hemophilia were turned into moderate or mild hemophilia. Elevations in liver enzymes that arose from a cytotoxic T-cell response to AAV capsid peptides, resulting in the death of transduced hepatocytes making factor IX, were originally discovered by Mano and colleagues. In the Nathwani trial, they were managed therapeutically as an autoimmune hepatitis with use of glucocorticoid therapy to control the toxicity and preserve factor IX levels. The original participants are now more than seven years post-infusion and continue to have a durable response. More recently, Spark and Unicure have developed their transgene cassettes to incorporate Factor IX Padua, a gain-of-function variant originally described by Aruda and colleagues, which provides for 30 to 50% Factor IX activity. These trials are both in phase three. Early results show very little breakthrough bleeding and no use of exogenous factor IX for many of the participants. The primary toxicity, elevated transdaminase levels, has been manageable in most hemophilia B trials if glucocorticoids are administered early after enzyme elevations before most factor IX production has been lost. Factor VIII gene therapy was always expected to be more problematic than factor IX. Factor VIII is five times the size, much more difficult for cells to manufacture, and does not fit inside the AAV capsid. Despite these challenges, Biomarin adapted and utilized a B-domain-deleted Factor VIII cassette developed originally by Sandberg and colleagues and began a dose escalation trial using AAV5 as the vector for delivery. At the third dose escalation, participants saw a marked rise in Factor VIII levels, to 60 international units per deciliter at 52 weeks by the chromogenic assay and 89 units per deciliter medians by the one-stage assay. The discrepancy between the two assays has been seen in most, perhaps all, factor VIII gene therapy programs and is thought to be an artifact of the coagulation assays for the transgene protein product. The chromogenic assay has been suggested to give a more accurate value. This surprising high result in factor VIII levels was achieved by optimizing the cassette and increasing the dose of vector administered. Toxicity was minimal and mostly manifested as small elevations of transaminases that were variably responsive to glucocorticoids. Since evidence of a cytotoxic T-cell response was not detected, this trial opened the question of whether the hepatotoxicity seen by many participants 
is due to a cytotoxic T cell response to the AAV capsids, or whether hepatocyte toxicity might also be induced during intracellular elimination of the capsids or production of the BDD factor VIII protein. Capsid degradation could overwhelm the endosomal protein degradation system, and processing factor VIII protein may induce ER stress responses. More research is required on this potentially important safety observation, but these potential causes may be related to the loss of circulating factor VIII activity over time. Results from other AAV factor VIII trials and more thorough immunologic and histologic investigation are necessary to understand causality of the hepatocyte toxicity. To date, only one group has published long-term data on factor VIII gene therapy. From year one to year two, Passy and colleagues reported a median drop from 60 IUs per deciliter to 26 IUs per deciliter. At the end of years three and four, the median was 20 and 16 IUs per deciliter, respectively. It is unclear what is causing the substantial 73% decline between years one and four, whether this is unique to the Biomarin AAV5 Factor VIII program or will affect other Factor VIII gene therapy programs, and whether it reflects a subclinical safety issue. Once other programs reveal long-term data and Biomarin published data beyond four years, the durability of the response will better indicate how long protective factor VIII levels are expected to last in individuals with variable starting levels. As in the factor IX studies, the participants in factor VIII gene therapy have shown a large drop in breakthrough bleeding and factor consumption. Thus, one can say many participants in these hemophilia gene therapy clinical trials are achieving functional cures for an as yet undefined duration. But what does that mean? Clinical trial participants are a carefully selected subgroup of all persons with hemophilia A or B. Individuals who have previously had an inapparent AAV infection and have anti-AAV antibodies are ineligible. Most of the serotypes being used in clinical trials were originally isolated or derived from non-human primate or human host AAVs. All of these serotypes demonstrate 90 to 95% homology of coat protein amino acids, leading to extensive serocross reactivity. AAV5 is an exception. Although isolated from a human host, it is most closely related to goat AAV and only about 65% homologous to primate AAVs, leading to less cross-reactivity in addition to a greater proportion of seronegative individuals. If an individual is seropositive, most groups have found that the infused viral vector doesn't reach the target. Thus, seropositive individuals are not eligible for current gene therapies. It should be noted that for all AAV antibody assays, reagents and methods are not standardized between all academic and pharma groups, precluding direct serological comparisons between laboratories and between AAV serotypes even within the same lab. A second major group excluded are children under 18 years of age. Most of the AAV-delivered transgenes remain extrachromosomal and establish episomes within the nucleus that can be lost during cell division. During early childhood, hepatocytes proliferate at a high rate, thus the transgene is not expected to provide a durable response. 
A third group ineligible for gene therapy are those with significant comorbid conditions, including any liver diseases and in some trials, coexisting HIV. A fourth group would be anyone needing to be redosed because of an inadequate response. The antibody response to the vector will remain very high for years, likely precluding redosing with current AAV vectors. A fifth group not eligible for gene therapy are the approximately 70% of the world's population of people with hemophilia who live in countries that have no to minimal access to protein replacement products. The introduction of gene therapy remains out of reach to most of the world. Thus, these first-generation gene therapies are not the one panacea for the community. Rather, they, like the advanced therapy products that have already been licensed in this decade, are another stepping stone to a brighter future. There is no doubt that gene therapy will continue to evolve, becoming more efficient, more reliable, with better stability and durability. Efficiency has not been defined in terms of gene therapy, but has a major impact on safety and cost to manufacture the therapy. Today, for instance, a 100 kilogram person with hemophilia A may receive six times 10 to the 13th vector genomes per kilogram, or six quadrillion vector genomes in total. For perspective, that's around two logs more than the estimates for all human cells and microbiome bacteria in the body, which are about 30 trillion each. Thus, the process of going from the circulation to the liver, to the hepatocyte, to the hepatocyte nucleus, to establishing stable episomes, to producing mRNA, to translating functional protein that can be processed and finished in the ER Golgi apparatus, to release into the circulation, finally, to be able to detect therapeutic levels is a complex one with huge unquantified losses along the way. Substantial improvements in any of these steps would be very important to potentially bringing the dose down by orders of magnitude to enable safer and more widespread application of the technology. Future improvements in safety, durability, and reliability may come in the form of other vector systems, including non-viral transgene delivery, gene editing, and cell-based therapies. The future for the hemophilia community is promising, particularly for the minority who live in countries that reimburse for the cost of these drugs. Some of these individuals and their healthcare providers will elect gene therapy when it becomes available, and many likely will have favorable responses, at least for a period of time. Numerous biological questions about the whole process from vector manufacture to hepatocyte-mediated protein production remain unanswered despite the ongoing advanced clinical trials, creating a need to expect and prepare for the unexpected for both healthcare providers and patients alike as they evaluate benefit risk for individuals. It has been a tumultuous 60 years since the days of fresh frozen plasma and almost completely inadequate therapy. Through the hepatitis and HIV crises of the 1970s and 80s, to the sequelae of death and destruction from these viruses through the 2000s, the community has embraced newer safe technologies that are approaching 24-7 protection. Gene therapy with careful consideration of benefit risk is the next step in the progression to eliminate the burden of hemophilia. For resource poor countries, the concept of gene therapy is really the only viable long-term solution. 
Thank you very much for listening. You've been listening to Blood Advances Talks. Please visit bloodadvances.org for more audio reviews and for information on how to subscribe to the Blood Advances Talks podcast. A full transcript of this podcast can be found online. Music for Blood Advances Talks was performed by the Art Topolo Trio and provided by Dr. Art Topolo. This presentation is copyrighted by the American Society of Hematology. We thank you for listening.